Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, I'm Jeremy Brock. Welcome to uh, the sixth and final event in this year's stunning series of screenwriters' lectures held in conjunction with Lucy Gard and the JJ Charitable Trust. Uh, what can I say about our next speaker? Uh, Paul Schrader wrote Taxi Driver. I think our work here is done. Um, but seriously, uh, Paul is so, so much more than the sum of any part that you can give him in a sentence. Uh, he is the writer and co-writer of Raging Bull, The Last Temptation of Christ, American Gigolo, Mishima, A Life in Four Chapters, Affliction, and 2017's utterly brilliant Disquisition on Faith First Reformed. Paul has written or directed over 23 extraordinary films, and I may well have got that number wrong. To sustain a level of excellence in this brutal industry for so many decades, to be the screenwriter of an iconic, groundbreaking film like Taxi Driver is simply breathtaking. We salute him and we thank him for taking the time to talk to us this evening. Paul will lecture, followed by a Q&A with film producer Tanya Sagachian, after which we will, as we always do, open it up to questions from the floor. Ladies and gentlemen, Paul Schrader. Is this mic working? Yes. Can you hear me? Uh, before I begin, I'd just like to take a moment to express uh, my gratitude to uh, someone, a, a friend, and someone who was an inspiration to me, which was Nicholas Rowe, and uh, who had a long and fruitful life, and there's nothing to be sad about, and just what I was to say, acknowledge you know, what he brought to this medium. Um, over the years, <clears throat> I have taught <clears throat> a screenwriting workshop uh, at various places, UCLA, um, Columbia University, and um, what this lecture is, is in fact a summary of that class. It's a prospectus for a course not given. And uh, it's sort of, I'll just sort of take you through the process of the class because I taught a method of screenwriting, which I devised. In fact, I don't think I've ever read a book about screenwriting, and I can't imagine ever reading one. I mean, I think one of the worst things that ever happened to screenwriting is this guy. What's his name? Bob. <laughs> Who wrote this book about Bob McKee? First act, second act, that book. Oh, you know. It doesn't work that way. You know, it's not that simple. So um, I, um, I will take the first class in which uh, there's an announcement that the class is open to all who wish to see it, uh, undergraduate or graduate, whatever. And so you get a pretty good sized room, almost as large as this. And, and you give an intellectual, I mean, you give an introductory lecture. And, um, 
And the introductory lecture essentially says, this is not an overview of screenwriting. This is my method. This is what I have learned to talk, this is what I have taught myself. And the only way to teach something as, trans, as fungible as screenwriting is to teach what has worked for you. Because there's no way you can teach what works for everybody. And, um, and even though what I'm saying may not work for 75% of you, it still has value because it works for me. <laughs> and uh, so hopefully your time will be productively spent. Uh, and it is uh, also uh, best suited for first-time writers. Uh, now, this first class, I say basically art works. This is what I believe. I believe art is functional. Art is a tool. Just like a hammer, pliers, a saw, you can use it to do stuff. And what you can use it to do is learn about yourself and learn about other people. And so what I'm going to talk about is the functionality of storytelling, not just the pleasure of it or the commerce of it. And to understand how art works, you begin with yourself. You are the raw material. Um, art isn't really about anything you're seeing. It's, it's, about, it's about you. And this is why this course is particularly useful for first-time uh, writers. Because too many students look at films and say, I can do a film like that. Well, you probably can. But why in the heck would anybody want to hire you? They've got people who can do films like that. As proof, there are films like that. And they got people who will do it on command, on deadline. Why would they fool around with a goofball like you? Uh, so you start to think, well, what is it? that I can bring to the dance that no one else can. You know, what can I walk in the room and say, I've got something of commercial value to you, but it's totally my own. And if you want it, you have to get it from me. So that is ground zero of the creation of a script. I began writing on spec, meaning speculation, I'm still writing on spec. Taxi Driver was written on spec. First Performance was written on spec. Uh, and when you write on spec, you are writing primarily for yourself, but you're also writing a calculation of what the marketplace is at any given time. And, uh, and so you know, that is, that is a, a kind of thing you learn. Now, when you are uh, the raw material, 
then then you um, need to study yourself. And in this study will come this class. Therefore, you know, I've invited you all to the class, and thank you for coming, but I can't teach this many people. So there's only going to be 10 of you in the class. And I don't particularly care about getting the 10 most talented students. And in fact, I really don't care how talented you really are at all. I just want interesting people. I want 10 interesting people, because I've got to spend 10 weeks teaching this class. And I want to spend it with 10 interesting people. So that um, the next step in this class is that everyone who wants to take the class must write out in no more than two sentences their most pressing personal problem at this time. And then I will, um, I will read these. <laughs> um, and you, I also want you to include some basic facts, age, sex, ethnic, whatever. I want to get a heterogeneous group. You know, I don't want, you know, ten, you know, ten white boys. <laughs> so, um, and, uh, but if you, um, and I'll, I'll go through these statements you make. I'll go through them very, very quickly. And I'll just go through and pick up ten people. And if you are then invited to the class, your problem then becomes communal property. It is the property of the class, no longer your property. Uh, if you're not invited, it gets discarded. And that, for that reason, I want you to write it out in longhand so that I can actually discard it. Um, so then I get uh, those pieces of paper, and I go through them. And if you've done it a number of times, you start to realize that people fall into certain categories. There's always going to be the overweight girl, usually Jewish. Uh, there's always going to be the homosexual, male or female, who hasn't told his or her parents yet. There's always going to be the minority with a huge grudge on his, on his shoulder. And there's always going to be the kid who wants to kill his father. And, uh, and so you get interesting people, different kinds of problems, so that you know, they're not all talking about the same problem. Um, and then, um, and you know, I, I tell them that if you, you know, we are in the dirty laundry business. This is the business we've chosen. If you have a problem with dirty laundry, you shouldn't be in here. And I don't, certainly don't want you in my class. Our task is to, everybody's interested in our dirty laundry, just not the way it actually looks. They want, it, they want us to rework it. And if you have a problem with reworking your dirty laundry for public consumption, you should not be in this class. Uh, so now uh, I get 10 students, and, uh, and we have 10 problems. And each student reads his or her statement, and we begin to discuss them. You know, the ramifications of this problem, 
the manifestations. Uh, what have you done about it? Um, you know, who else knows? All this stuff. So essentially what you're doing is group therapy. And so I'm going to do the stages here. So we all discuss these problems. What the next class will bring is a metaphor. And begin to discuss what a metaphor is for your problem. A metaphor is not the same thing as the problem. So using myself as an example, I'd say, you know, I did a film about loneliness, about young male loneliness. And um, this came out of a period of, of the, uh, a dark period of uh, wandering and being ungrounded. And uh, I was sort of living in my car, and I had a pain in my stomach, went to the hospital, had a bleeding ulcer at the age of 25 because I was just drinking and driving. And, uh, and in the hospital, I got this image of the taxi cab. It came to me. This yellow rectangular coffin, metal coffin, floating through the open sewers of a metropolis. And inside that coffin is trapped a young man. And it looks like he's surrounded by life, but in fact, he's absolutely alone. And the power of that metaphor just overwhelmed me. And I knew I had to write that story because I was becoming that young man. And the only way I could not become him was to establish his identity apart from mine to write about him. And so it did. I did. And as I said earlier, art actually works. I learned about that young man, and I learned not to be that young man by writing about him. So I walked into the whole screenwriting business as self-therapy, not as commerce. Uh, and the, that script wasn't seen by anybody for a year afterward. It, it had done its job, you know, went, went on a shelf. So now we need metaphors for your individual problems. And you need to come back with metaphors next week. Now, what is a metaphor? A metaphor is the stand-in. It is not the problem itself. So the metaphor for a lonely boy is not a lonely boy. The metaphor for an unattractive girl is not an unattractive girl. It's something like the metaphor, I mean, like the problem, but not the problem itself. It's like two wires. You have the problem and the metaphor, and they have to get close enough for a spark to jump across. And if they're too far apart, there'll be no spark, and if they're on top of each other, there'll be no spark. So you have to tease them and, and, and play with the spark. And, uh, and great stories throughout history have had great metaphors. Uh, some of the most famous stories. Uh, Frankenstein. 
but the, you know, how can you have a better metaphor than that? The, the metaphor essentially does the job. You know, you, know, you can uh, or the or the, the walking zombies. It doesn't really matter how how good it is anymore. The metaphor has such strength. Jaws, Exorcist, Rosemary's Baby. These are powerful functional metaphors. And uh, and if you have a good problem, a good metaphor, you know, you're the, a lot of the battle is won already. Uh, the uh, let me make sure I'm not losing myself here. Oh yeah, um, and a, a metaphor can be sometimes an occupation, taxi driver. It could be a historical moment in time, you know, Waterloo, I suppose. It could be um, a certain kind of love story, uh, Romeo and Juliet. But it has to be something that expresses your problem without being the problem itself. And I remember I was teaching this class at UCLA, and I had um, I was in uh, analysis at that time, five days a week on the on the couch. And uh, and one of the things I had been talking with my psychiatrist about was the inability to express love. And uh, now I'm teaching this class at UCLA, and we're in this phase where we're looking for metaphors. And uh, I happened to say to the class member, I said, now, what occupation? does this person have? Are they uh, a factory worker, a bookkeeper, a doctor, a gigolo, a lawyer? And boom. As soon as I said the word gigolo, I said, that's it. Boom, you've got your metaphor. That's the metaphor you've been looking for, for the inability to express love. Now I had a problem. Now I had a metaphor. I was on my way. Uh, sometimes the metaphor, you struggle for it. Uh, years later, I was looking for a metaphor for midlife crisis. I had uh, turned 40, and I was thinking I, I should do a midlife movie. And I thought about all the normal stuff. He leaves his wife takes off with a co-ed, buys a car, drives across country, all these, you know, joins the foreign service, whatever kind of wacky metaphor. And they all seemed so cliched and so, there was no spark. There were, the wires were right on top of each other. And I um, began to think, well, you know, this went on for at least six months. I said, well, maybe I'm not gonna find a, a midlife metaphor. And then uh, one night, I woke up abruptly from a dream, about 5 a.m., and I had been talking. Uh, in this dream, a drug dealer I once knew named John was right in front of my face, just right there. And I hadn't seen him for a year. And I said, well, wow, that was vivid. Wow, that was vivid. He was right in front of me. I, said, I thought, well, what were we talking about? I said, oh, he was asking about me about the movies. He wanted to know what movies to see. I said, that's it. 
I couldn't find my metaphor. And my metaphor got sick of waiting and came and found me. This middle-aged drug delivery boy <coughs> whose boss is quitting to start a cosmetics company and who has no skills. That's midlife metaphor. Right there it is. It's a great one. No one's seen it before. And I have my metaphor. And uh, I went right to my office and started making notes. And by the end of the day, I had tracked down the real people and, uh, and uh, said, you know, I want to make a film about you. And uh, <laughs> this is a, a, an aside for the Brits here. Uh, Cynthia, who was the, the main drug dealer, said to me, well, l l let me get back to you. So she called me back and she said, well, I spoke to Bertolucci, I spoke to Jeremy Thomas, I spoke to Michael White, and they all say you're cool. <laughs> so uh, so uh, I did that was light sleeper. Uh, so, so the uh, next class commences, and everybody has brought in several metaphors for their problem and they proposed them. Uh, for the most part, you know, they're very feeble. They suffer from the same problem I had with midlife crisis. Just, there's no energy in the metaphor. There's no imagination. There's no spark. Uh, but once they're out there on the table, once they're part of the communal discussion, you know, people start talking around. And uh, and uh, which is why it's always handy to have a closeted homosexual in the group because you know the metaphor that will work for them, which is somebody involved in industrial espionage. Um, somebody who is secretly spying on his own company, getting paid by another company. And this is a great metaphor for a homosexual who hasn't told anybody because you're actually talking about the problem without talking about the problem. You know, what is it like to live a double life in which people you, who trust you, you are deceiving, like any, any spy. And so you can say to that student, I said, you know, here's a, try this metaphor on for size. And you know, maybe he doesn't run with it, maybe he does, but he starts to get the idea of what a metaphor can do. And, uh, and then uh, uh, I remember one class, uh, uh, the kid had a very interesting problem, which was he had killed somebody when he was 16 with, in a car. It wasn't his fault, but he remembered that. It was a, a young 14-year-old child ran out in the street. And obviously that is something that stayed with him. And so we started trying to come, you know, what's a metaphor for that? And the metaphor we came up with, going back and forth, was a professional woman in her 30s who had supposedly an abortion when she was young. But she has now come to realize that it wasn't an abortion, it was a child that was delivered and went into a uh, for, uh, adopted home or whatever in the marketplace. 
And she, because she sees this girl on the street, she said, that's my daughter. Boom. Now we're dealing with the metaphor of the man who killed the kid. Because you have the woman seeing the daughter she killed, but the daughter is still alive. So that's going to work your metaphor. And then at that point, you just flip the tables and see it from the girl's point of view, and you're in business. Um, the, uh, uh, the, you know, the unattractive or overweight girl metaphor, often, you know, that, this is a standard one, the ugly duckling, the Cinderella, whatever. Um, and it's not terribly constructive for a young woman who feels herself unattractive to tell a story about a woman who feels unattractive. It doesn't, she can tell that story, but she's not going to learn much. Uh, what she has to do is put herself in the shoes of someone who thinks they are unattractive, someone who is bulimic, someone, you know, who is um, uh, injuring themselves and cutting themselves because they feel they're unattractive when they're not. Now, now, you know, that's a good learning point. You can learn from that. Um, and uh, so th that's what we hash out uh, in this third class and try to get every student headed off in a certain metaphorical direction. The... Uh, The, uh, the fourth class then revolves around plot. Plot is simply what happens when you take a, when you take a problem and drive it through a metaphor. Okay, you have a problem. The problem is loneliness. You have a metaphor, a taxi cab driver. Shove your problem into the metaphor. What happens? Well, you have a, a guy who's drifting around. He meets a girl he can't have, but wants. He meets a girl he wants, but can't have. He tries to kill the father figure of one and fails, so he kills the father figure of the other and becomes a hero. That is the entire plot of Taxi Driver, right there. And all that comes from is taking this loneliness and shoving it through a taxi cab and imagining what can happen. And uh, so uh, the uh, so you know in this class we explore the nature of the problem by exploring the nature of plots. What can happen? You know, there's only a certain number of plots out there. And, but if your problem is interesting enough, if you've analyzed it properly, and if your metaphor is intriguing enough, hackneyed plots from yesteryear will live again as you push them through because they will have a new life. They will be, uh, you know, the new wine and the, the old bottles. And, so when, um, 
when you start talking about plot, you just hypothesize. Um, now, the class is then instructed the next week to come back with a five to ten minute narrative of what happens between their, their problem and their me metaphor and the plot. What, what events can happen? Just imagine events. Come up with something. It doesn't have to be qualitative, but you have to come up with something. And that you know, takes us to the next step. I do not believe that screenwriting is part of the literary tradition. I believe it's part of the oral tradition. It's just me, me telling you a story. You know, it's your uncle coming back from a hunting trip and saying, you know, the dog ate something bad, got sick, and the bird got away, and, uh, and we, didn't come, we didn't, you know, come back with anything. And, but if your uncle is a good storyteller, hopefully he is, I had, I had good uncle storytellers, he can tell that story, you know, for 15 minutes. And uh, that's what it is, a world tradition. Let me tell you a story. So now we have these 10 students, each of whom has a little bit of a story to tell. And they're just exploring. And, um, and let me extemporaneize. Okay, so, um, okay. A man is giving a lecture at BAFTA wearing a blue jumper. In the middle of the lecture, he has orange glasses. Nobody knows why. <laughs> In the middle of the lecture, he abruptly walks out and leaves um, without comment. And on the street, someone tracks him down and says, you know, what's wrong, what's wrong, what's wrong? He said, I, I just got scared, I got scared. He said, well, you know, let's have a drink. Said, okay, okay, we'll, we'll have a drink. And uh, he said, I don't drink, uh, but if you come to my flat, I, I got some pot. I said, okay, okay, that sounds good. <laughs> so he goes over there, and now he and the two flatmates are all smoking pot. Um, I'm making, literally making this up as I speak. <laughs> um, so now I've got this older man and these two kids smoking grass in a flat. And the story is starting to feel a little thin. And... Um, you know, when uh, Raymond Chandler once said, you know, if you get in trouble, have somebody walk in the room with a gun. <laughs> because the reader will be so happy they're there, they won't ask how they got there. <laughs> and so now I'm in a little trouble. So, okay. A red sports car pulls up. And two huge black men. 300 pounds each, like linebackers, wearing purple suits, are sitting in the car. They screech to a halt, they get out and go toward the apartment. Well, I got you back. Boy, do I got you back now. You know, you're all on the edge of your seats. I also got these two black guys in purple suits, and I have to figure out what to do with them. <laughs> but maybe, hopefully, something will come to me. Um, and that's what storytelling is. And the first time you tell your story, it may be 
five, ten minutes long. And you kind of make it up a bit as you go. You say to somebody, uh, let me buy you a coffee, let me buy you a drink, I, gotta, I want you to hear the story. And you don't really care what they think of the story. It doesn't really matter whether they like it or not. What matters is the level of attention they are paying you. Do you have them? What is the eye contact? What is the body language? You can feel it when you don't have somebody. And then you've got to improvise, just like a stand-up comic. Um, and you've got to keep them. You know, and, and maybe what you realize in, in the back of your head is that uh, I'm doing too much acquisition. I should have had a comic scene in here. You know, if I had told a comic scene right there, I could have kept them, but now it was just, just too much exposition. So you're, you're making these calculations and you're making notes as you tell the story. And then you outline, tell the story again. Outline, tell the story again. Um, and it grows in length. And if you can tell a story for 45 minutes, you have a movie. And the way to know for sure, if you're uncertain, is um, take someone to a pub and uh, start telling your story. And then about you know, 30 minutes into your story, you say, excuse me, I have to go to the bathroom. And you come back. And you start another conversation, another tangent. Maybe you're talking politics now. If they don't ask you how the story ends, <laughs> you don't have a story. <laughs> Um, and, uh, and this is actually, I think, a very, very productive way to develop a story. It's not, you know, often stories fall into three acts. That's the way life tends to be, you know, past, present, and future. Uh, but it doesn't have to be three acts. Some stories are two acts, some stories are one act, some are five. It will find its own shape. And it will find it as you tell the story. And what begins to happen as you tell your story repeatedly and re-outline it, one of two things happens, and they're both good things. One is you get sick of the story, it dies, it withers, and you walk away. This is a very good thing. It means you have just saved yourself six months of writing a story that nobody wants to read or make. You, you, this is a good thing that happened to you. you. You protected yourself because there's nothing quite so debilitating as writing three or four scripts in a row as a beginning writer and none of them people are interested in. You're done. Your spirit is broken. So don't even write until you know somebody's going to be interested in that story. The other thing that can happen while you tell the story is the story will get sick of being told. You'll feel it as you tell the story. The story will start saying to you, I want to be written now. I'm done with this phase. I'm fully formed. I want to go into print. And that's also a happy day, because there you are with a fully fleshed story in your head, full of dialogue and pacing and everything, and you can go to work. So uh, what exists between the oral tradition and the script phase is uh, the outline. And I've, I've brought some outlines to sort of show you
an outline begins, you know, just as a list of things. And uh, in a given film, uh, usually about 40 to 50 things happen. So as you tell your story, your outline expands. So maybe it begins with 15 things that happened or 20 things, and gradually uh, it expands. And that's always the best way to write. You're much more creative when you're going larger. The worst thing to do for me as a writer is to start with 150 pages and figure out how you can do 100. I'd rather start with 70 and figure out how I can do 100. So uh, now here are my outlines from... Uh, so th those are the outlines from American Gigolo. They're actually the ones I was using. And you can see this is an earlier outline. And on the outline, I made notes to myself. Add something at 16, add something at 12, reverse these two scenes, move this scene over here. And so I'm reworking my outline. And then I will tell it again, and then rework it again. And until you get to this level of outline, which is pretty close to what you need when you need to start writing. And that is a list of everything that happens. And uh, it's also a list of a projected page count. So let me see here. Um, OK. Um, Something, okay, Julian and Leroy, uh, scene 42, happens on page 102. I've done, I'm doing a running page count. So I can tell you what happens 102 minutes if you're using a page a minute. I can tell you what happens 102 minutes into a film. And uh, that is because film is a, a fixed time frame. And, uh, uh, a scene that is good on page 35 and it's not necessarily good on 45, same scene. You know. And so you have to be very aware of the calibration of your time. It's like a, a long distance runner who's running along and says, you know, when I, when I pass uh, the coffee shop, I should be 12 minutes, 30 seconds into the run. And if I'm too quick, I, I should evaluate why am I only 12 minutes into the run? Or if I'm 13 minutes in, why am I slow? Calculate. Same thing happens when you're writing a script. Uh, I'm five pages off my outline. Was my calculation wrong? Uh, in which case, I need to recalculate. Or am I just adding stuff that's unnecessary? And so you're always thinking about that. And, uh, and uh, so here, here's a, uh, oh, this is from Raging Bull. <laughs> now, now, you can see here, 
I, uh, okay, Danville flight. Uh, I predicted it to be on page 77. I predicted it to last two and a half pages. It fell in at 74. So I was in my parameters. You know, I was hitting my mile markers. And, uh, and then as I, and I, I like to do these outlines on a single sheet because you can, you can carry it around with you and you can look at it. So here's the last temptation of Christ. <laughs> you know, the entire film on a single sheet of paper. Every scene, the length of every scene, the projection of every scene, and then when the scene is crossed out, list of what the real page count was. <clears throat> so if I projected Jesus uh, scourged by Pilate, I projected it at 81, it came in at 85. Okay, so, uh, and so that just like Storytelling is spontaneous. It's also extremely calculated. And so how do you get from that spontaneous moment in the coffee shop where you're literally making stuff up to that calculation where you know what's going to happen on page 84? Well, you do it through the outline, and then you um, uh, re-outline back and forth. And uh, usually, it, it's usually about... In terms of a detailed outline, maybe four or five of them I do before I'm at that point where it's you know ready to be written. And uh, and and sometimes it get very complex. And you're making notes all over the place. There's light sleeper. Uh, so that more or less completes, that more or less completes the process. So we are now six classes in out of 10. And the students are now permitted to write. And they have to have a script done in 10 weeks. Obviously, none of them are gonna do this. <clears throat> and so the scripts, you know, straggle in over the next year or so. But I don't want to let them write till we get to this point. So now they're writing, and I fill out the remainder of the class with some exercises. I'll do an exposition exercise. I'll do a dialogue exercise. Um, and then I'll have a class about formatting and more or less technical things. And then the last class, I always like to bring in a fellow screenwriter who works in a method totally unlike mine and who, for whom everything I have said is wrong and inappropriate. <laughs> and I just want to bring in somebody to see, I've been convincing you of something for 10 weeks. Here's a working screenwriter who happens to be even wealthier than I am. <laughs> And he doesn't believe a word I've said. So just bear that in mind as you move on in life. Um, and uh, I guess that, you know, and usually uh, I, in every class, 
There's usually one script that actually gets made, strangely enough. Um, I remember I had a student my, at UCLA. He was a Japanese student, Nisei. And he was trying to write about his family. And everything about it was so hackneyed, just so predictable, you know, inner family dynamics. And in the LA Times that morning, there was an article about the lowriders, the, the, uh, the, car, the, the car club gangs in East LA. And it was very fascinating. And I said to him, his name was Desmond Nakano, he's, he still is a working writer. And I said, you know, go, go down there. And go hang out with those guys. You know, what, what's the worst that can happen? You're, you're, you tell them you're a student, uh, you're interested in writing a script about what they do. What's the worst that can happen? They tell you to fuck off. That's all. So go give it a shot. That's my assignment to you. Don't come back next week if you haven't. So he goes down there and he starts meeting these guys and starts hanging with them. And they take him sort of into their social lives. And he starts writing a script about them. Well, it's the same script he was trying to write about his parents and his brother and his sister. Only now he was far enough away from it that he wasn't getting locked up. He was freed. And everything he wanted to say about his immediate situation, he was able to say about this metaphorical situation. And, uh, and you know, that uh, usually in every class, usually somebody who it works for. Then, of course, as I just mentioned, there's always a fair number who it doesn't work for. But uh, at least they, hopefully they've learned something. And uh, oh, I was trying to keep it to 45 minutes. I didn't quite make it. But I, I, I once gave this lecture in New Delhi at three hours. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely brilliant lecture, um, and for the clip, for those of you who haven't yet had a chance to see it from Paul's latest film, The Magnificent First Reformed, um, I'm buzzing with ideas from uh, what you've just outlined for the audience here, and I'd like to, to go back and ask you a few things that you haven't included there, and also to take this opportunity to talk about First Reformed, um, not least because I think... Can people hear you? I, I'm having trouble hearing you, and you're three feet away. Okay. Um, is that better? <laughs> Great. Thank you. I was just thanking Paul for the brilliant uh, lecture and also letting you know that the clip you just, uh, just saw on the screen there is a script. It's a clip from Paul's latest feature film, um, First Reformed, and I'm going to take the opportunity to talk to him about both the lecture and First Reformed, if I can, and there will be a chance for you to also ask questions. Um, Paul... Uh, what you haven't talked about in your um, lecture there is three or four of the other things that I always think are really important for screenwriters to tackle, tone, dialogue, character, and endings. And I wondered if I might ask you about all of those before we step into Well, <coughs> dialogue, <coughs> when, when I, after I finish the main section, we get into these, we do a, uh, one class on dialogue. And I give 
an example. I say, okay, a man's in a supermarket. He meets his ex-wife. She has a young child. Um, or, no, maybe not that. Maybe two people are waiting for a subway, a mother and a daughter. Uh, and this is sort of what they talk about. They write some dialogue for me. And everybody comes in with dialogue. And I, every time, people, dialogue usually doesn't work because it's so linear. And the mind is not necessarily engaged by linear dialogue. And what I often do at that point is I instruct class members to read the scene. First we read it through, then we read it through backwards. Last line first, second to last line second, second to third line, read it in reverse. So that the questions, the answers are appearing before the questions. And it's always more interesting. <laughs> um, and, you know, students begin to sort of understand, you know, Harold Penter's thesis, which is, you know, language is the tool we use not to communicate. <laughs> and, uh, and the language also does that, so I do that with dialogue. And then I also do it with exposition, which is always such a killer. You give an expositional exercise that is impossible. You know, and see how people get around it. Um, the end, I always know the end. I can't uh, start a script unless I know the title and the end. Uh, I, you know, the idea that somebody could write a script and not have a title for it yet, just, just I can't imagine it. <laughs> Um, and I've noticed with your titles, you often um, keep the character out. It's a first reformed taxi driver. Um, you don't, uh, I think you once said of Bresson and pickpocket, it isn't a pickpocket, it's pickpocket. And I wondered if you could talk a little bit about why you choose to do that. Well, I mean... You know, a title has to have a certain resonance and a certain mystery to it. Um, I hate gerundative titles, breaking away, running home, all that stuff is terrible. And also, it needs to have, preferably, a, a consonant in it, or one hard sound that can um, arrest the progress so you don't, it's not all soft sounds. Um, 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 yeah, I, um, I, I was just working on a script. I've now abandoned it. But I, I, I couldn't think of a good title. And then I came up with a title that had nothing to do with the script at all. It was called This Burning Wheel. And, uh, but it still didn't work. I, I gave up. I, <laughs> <laughs> Um, and you don't start without the ending. I think probably because looking at your body of work, the ending is always um, a rumination or a mediation on some form of redemption in the broadest and loosest sense of the word. Is that, um, is that part of why you write? Part of what? Why you write. Is that part of why you tell stories?
I'm not quite sure uh, why I tell stories. And I'm not sure if I were 18 years old now, I would tell stories, you know. It was a time and a place, and it seemed to be the thing to do. Um, maybe I should be writing code if I was in my teens. Um, but um, this idea that art is functional, that it has uh, <clears throat> uh, that it can get you through life, it can make you learn, it can make you survive, and uh, you know, and at any point in all our lives, we have two or three problems that are running around, whether it's problems about relationships or sexual needs or uh, career crisis, whatever it is, there's something going on. And so you're always floating around sort of looking for metaphors. And sometimes they arrive and sometimes they don't. Um, but I think when you started writing, uh, it was a time when cinema afforded the opportunity for people to have answered the questions that were in the ether. And somehow uh, they looked to the big screen to address those questions. <coughs> I, I wonder if you would agree with that and whether Well, or not you know, there are people who talk about the American cinema of the 70s as some healthy on period. Um, it was to a degree, but not because there were any more talented filmmakers. There's probably, in fact, more talented filmmakers today than there was in the 70s. What there was in the 70s was better audiences. <laughs> and a lot of what was happening in the world had people in consternation. Women's rights, gay rights, uh, sexual liberation, drug liberation, anti-war. All of these things were rolling on top of each other. And people were turning to the arts, specifically movies. What should we feel about this? Bob and Ted and Alice about wife swapping or coming home about Vietnam veterans or unmarried woman about female liberation. So almost one a week, films were coming out to address these things that were on people's minds. And when, when people take movies seriously, it's very easy to make a serious movie. When they don't take it seriously, it's very, very hard. We now have audiences that don't take movies seriously. It's very hard to make a serious movie for them. So it's not that us filmmakers are letting you down. It's you audiences are letting us down. <laughs> and because if audiences are receptive to a quality movie, believe me, they don't get it. We're all just waiting to make it. And uh, so, uh, so at that time, that period of about 10, 12 years there, um, every single week, there was some kind of film coming out addressing some social issue in a fictional form. And clearly with First Reformed, you have um, taken on the subject and problems around climate change as one of the themes that 
underpin the story. I, I wonder how you feel your audiences have responded to that aspect of the story. But I lost you at the climate change. Uh, how, how do you think your audiences have responded to that aspect of the story? Uh, well, you know, that's a big question. Uh, because there is no response. There is no response. Um, we have, uh, as a species, we have made our decision. And it's pretty clear. And now it's a question of how long it takes for that decision to be fully effective. But, you know, there is no, well, whatever tipping point there was, we, we've passed it. And, uh, and it is, um, you know, it, uh, it's very hard to, uh, a friend of mine wrote an article for the New York Times calling, called, you know, Raising a Child in a Doomed World. And uh, my adult children, do not have children, and uh, they don't feel they should. And that is the question that begins first reformed. Should, is it, should I bring someone into this world knowing what kind of life they will have? And uh, so, you know, it would be nice to say the movie has a positive effect, but uh, our gorilla brains, are not going to get us out of this problem. Hmm. Evolution has taken us about as far as it can. The next stage will be some other form of evolved intelligence. But us gorillas, you know, we, uh, we're not equipped to solve this problem. But you do have Ethan Hawke's character, Toller, tell us that it's better to have hope. Well, you know, uh, Albert Camus said, uh, I don't believe. I choose to believe. And, you know, that's where we are. I don't hope. I have no reason to hope. But you can choose to hope. And that can be a, a way to live. Mm -hmm. Although if we look at some of the choices in First Reformed and go back to the Yakuza or the suicidal tendency in, um, in many of your films, your characters um, often use suicide as... Um, a method of action. Uh, and I think you said in one of the lines in Yakuza was that in Japan, when the character's cracking uh, up, they take it out on themselves, but in America, they open yeah. the window and take it out <laughs> on everyone else. I, I wondered if you could elaborate a little about that. You know, it was interesting. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, someone was screaming Mishima. <laughs> And I watched the opening of it. And the initial voiceover comes from a book, Sun and Steel, that Mishma wrote. And it was talking about his decision to take this course of action. And he says, you know, words are no longer sufficient. So I have found a new form of expression. And that new form of expression was uh, militarism. And then 30-some years later, I'm sitting in my office, and I'm writing the script first reform. And I write a line, and he says, I have found a new form of prayer. And I thought, oh, wow, that's a good line. <laughs> I didn't realize I had written it 35 years ago. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so it does all kind of circle around. Yeah. 
Well, it feels to me as though um, first reform really is the state of grace from the state of nature that we discovered you with at the beginning of your career. I could talk to you all evening, but I'm mindful that the audience may have questions. So can I open it to the, to the floor and um, see if there's anything anyone here would like to ask Paul? Um, down here in the front row, um, I think we have mics. Hi, Paul. Uh, pleasure to hear you speaking. I was wondering if you'd just talk a little bit about your process of writing and how did it change at all when you collaborate with directors, Martin Scorsese, for example, or do you stick to your process throughout? Uh, I'm not a very good employee. <laughs> uh, I wish I was, um, because there's a lot of money to be made uh, by being a good employee. Um, you know, I d wrote four scripts for Scorsese, but we never talked about it. I would do it, and he would talk, I would do it again, but there's only one person in the room when I was writing. And the last film we did together, um, Bringing Out the Dead, um, I realized that we would not work together again, that it was over because there were now two directors in the room, and one of them was calling himself a writer. And the other one was sort of pissed off. And so I realized, you know, there can only be one director in Scorsese's script development, and that has to be him, and it's not me. So um, I have not been very good at collaborating. Um, you know, I, I've never held a job in my life. I've, every single job I've ever had, I got fired from. And it's always at some point where somebody says, do it this way, and you say, no. That's not the way you do it, you do it this way. And then they say, well, you know, who's the boss here? And then you get fired. <laughs> and though that's really probably the reason why I've worked on spec all these years. Because I, I, I used to get jobs but I always got in trouble when I got a bad reputation as somebody who was not cooperative, was not a team player. So I sort of realized that the only way I can make a living is just do my own thing and then go out and find somebody to finance it. But how did you behave then uh, on Comfort of Strangers when you're the writer, but you're really acting as a director, and you've got Harold Pinter and Ian McEwan to... Well, m with. most scripts... I have done, I've rewritten, I even go to the point of retyping the entire script so that I can feel full ownership over it. So I can stand there on the set and say, oh, I remember when I wrote this. I didn't actually write this, I just retyped it. <laughs> but I, I wrote it. Uh, two scripts I had that I didn't really want to touch. Uh, one was by Brendan Canales and one was by Harold Pinter. And, uh, and we were in Rome. It was a four-hander, Natasha Richardson, Rupert Everett, Chris Walker, and Helen Mirren. And Pinter's script was quite elliptical. And all of the actors were on me. They wanted changes. And, uh, and I liked this script quite a bit. And I didn't want to make changes. But, of course, I'm a writer, and they can pressure me. Um, so I called up Harold, and I said, uh, 
you know, let's do it this way. Will you come down to Rome and we'll do a two-week rehearsal. You rehearse the first week, I'll rehearse the second week. And I won't say a thing the first week, I'll just sit in the corner. So he came down and his rehearsal method essentially was reading and rereading and reading the script over and over again. And at one point, Natasha said to him, now Harold, I'm in Venice with my boyfriend, my two children from another man are staying with my mother in England. What is my relationship to those children's father? Is he alive? Do I know him? Are we on good terms? And Harold said, Natasha, I have never answered a question like that, and I'm not going to start now. <laughs> Read the text. And by which she simply meant, you read it enough. You won't answer that question. And whatever answer you have is going to be a better answer than anyone I can tell you. And uh, so after Harold left, we all came down. And I said, your big daddy went back to London. And uh, uh, um, let's all discuss the script. And Chris Walken said, you know, I kind of like it the way it is. <laughs> <laughs> and we made no changes. There's a question over there on the corner. Um, Paul, thank you so much for a very enlightening um, lecture. It's sort of helped me as a writer. I wanted to ask you about Cat People, because, um, you know, at the t in looking at the time when you made that film, and of course today everything seems to be re remade, left, right and centre. How did you interpret that? I mean, was it, um, did the studio give you a specific mandate, or was it something that you wanted to do on your own way? Well, it was, uh, uh, I was doing the film with Daniel Scarfiari, so it was very much a visual exercise. And um, I, um, the script, the original script, had a kind of traditional horror arc. And at the end of the script, the protagonist shoots the monster, kills the monster, the old house burns down. And uh, I thought, you know, I had a uh, inspiration. I said, you know, what happens if instead of killing the monster, he fucks it? And then he built a shrine to it and comes and worships it. Wouldn't that be a more interesting ending? And that's what we did. Um, and, uh, and I remember uh, we had a screening in Westwood, uh, and uh, we went with Jerry Bruckheimer, who was the producer. We were sitting in the back row, and there's two teenage girls in front of us. And it comes to the ending when John Hurt is tying up Nastasia in a bondage, and David Bowie is intoning this sort of ritualistic uh, music, and he's tying up Natasha so he can fuck her to make her back into a, uh, a leopard. And, uh, and the two girls in front of me, one turned to the other and said, oh my god. And I turned to Jerry and said, ah, Jerry, I think maybe we went a little far. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, looking back at it, that's why the film probably has shelf life, because there's 
Not a lot of competition for that. <laughs> There's a lady down here at the front. Sorry, those of you at the back, I can't see your hand, so wave aggressively if you have questions. Hello. Can you hear me? Yes, I can hear you. Um, what, what I love about your, your films is that the scripts and lie somewhere between uh, c cynicism without ever being cynical and sentimentality, and they're never sentiment sentimental, and I hate that. They're, they're, so you, you get to really human, human feelings, sometimes awkward, but always we can identify with. And one of the brilliant expressions of that was in First Reformed, and I knew I, if I could vote for the Academy <laughs> Award, I would have at this moment. It was when he's showing around the tourists, the family, and he says, we have a little gift shop here. <laughs> and he says, and, I'm and he looks at them and he says, I'm afraid we're out, the only thing we have left is a small size. <laughs> and knowing, of course, how Americans are so obese, of course, that would all, all that would be left. But that, that the fact that this man, after all we've seen him go through, is reduced to saying that, and I, I just thought it was brilliant. How did you ever think of putting that in? Well, in that particular case, um, wardrobe you know, provided the T-shirts. And being cost-effective as they were, they only did extra small, because no one was going to put them on. And so the extra small looked the same size as extra large. And so I was looking through them, and I said, these are all extra small. <laughs> so we did that on the fly. <laughs> but, um, but that joke in that scene, that was a joke I heard you know, growing up in the church uh, about uh, the uh, minister in the choir miss, uh, uh, mistress, you know, she chased him around the church and caught him by the organ. And uh, that was a joke I heard as a kid and finally found a place for it. <laughs> There's a question up there at the back. Um, hi, this might be quite a quick answer, um, but do you ever um, write different versions of scripts for financiers or actors? Do you ever kind of change them based on who you're kind of sending them to? Well, I mean, the only reason you would change is a request. Uh, I had a meeting two days ago about this film I want to do with Willem and Ethan. And the antagonist is this 300-pound Mexican. And the financier said, I think we can get more money if you make the antagonist a woman. And so I'm going to try that and make her sort of Mercedes McCambridge-like. And, uh, but, uh, uh, and often when someone makes a suggestion like that, it's, it throws you for a loop, but it also fires some neurons up there and you say, that's, you know, I, I can actually sort of do that. Um, but I would never uh, write something specifically for an actor. Uh, that, that, that's the door to hell. Um, you know, um, 
Uh, it makes you a lazy writer to begin with, because you're now hearing the words as spoken by Al Pacino. And you're saying, wow, that's a great speech. It's not a great speech. Al Pacino's a good actor, that's all. <laughs> and uh, so you have to try to write dialogue and scenes almost actor-proof, so that if it so happens that the only way they'll finance that movie is with a lug of an actor, you know, Arnold Schwarzenegger, your script should be good enough to still work with Arnold. Um, <laughs> You know, uh, so th that's how you have to think as a writer. There's a question down here. Hello. Um, in First Reformed, uh, you, you shoot the movie in a particular aspect ratio, which is very focusing, and it changes at one point later on in the film. And I was wondering about that in terms of the process of writing the story. Was that something you conceived as you wrote it, how it was going to be viewed, or was that later on as a director that you looked at that? No, um, uh, I, I said this yesterday. Uh, <clears throat> I had written a, a book of theological aesthetics uh, as a film critic, but I never thought I would make a film of that nature. And then about three years ago, I was having a conversation with Pavel Pavlovsky, who had done Ida. After that conversation, I walked uptown, and I realized it's now time. It's time for you to write that spiritual script, the one you swore for decades that you would never write. And Ida was 133 black and white. So I said, okay, I'm going to do a film just like that, 133 black and white. Eventually, I ended up making it in color, but that was the template. And since I was dealing with spiritual style, you're, you immediately engage yourself with withholding devices. You immediately start giving less. Well, one way you can give less is to have a smaller image, you know, withhold music, withhold acting, withhold editing, you know, withhold camera moves, withhold foreground background. And so it's just one of a, of a buffet of withholding devices. Do you regret that you made it in color? What? Do you regret having made it in color? No, no I don't. Um, uh, because I saw Pavel's new film, Cold War, and I was just talking to him, and he was saying so, how great it was in black and white. I don't know. I, I thought it should have been in color. <laughs> but, um, and then, you know, you can't shoot in, you know, you can now shoot in black and white digitally. You, uh, two years ago, you couldn't. So a film like Nebraska was simply shot in color and then they dialed it down. So one of the reasons the black and white is so unattractive. But now they have a dedicated black and white digital camera, so you can shoot it black and white. But what that means is you can't do both. You know, you have to design your sets and your palette for black and white or for color. And so then the task simply became how little color can we use and how minimal can we make everything. And so, you know, there's red is used for the Pepto-Bismol and for the blood, and that's it, you know. And uh, so that becomes one of those constraints that is very, very useful because uh, limitations in any art form are inspirational. If I tell you that I want you to make a uh, fiberglass chair, for a 500-pound person, 
but it has to be really stylish. Your, your, your mind is going to jump. So how can I do that? Whereas if I tell you, oh, I want you to make a stylish fiberglass chair, your mind isn't going to jump. So those kinds of limitations uh, inspire you. There's a question down there. Um, you were mentioning that you need to know the ending of your script before you can start filming. Is that ending dialogue, or is it an actual final visual shot? So I'm sorry, I missed that. The question is down here. Sorry, it's hello. Um, um, it's just so, for example, at the end of Blue Collar, where you have the freeze frame. Yeah. Did you decide on that shot and that image before you wrote the whole script? Because you were saying you need to know the ending before you start the writing process. Well, and, you know, it was part of the script process. You know, uh, when I came to that ending in the course of the script, I think probably must have been fairly early on because I was creating a situation that could not be resolved and had to just be stopped in a dialectical way. So that ending was always there. You know, you know it's not like you know, Harvey takes the wrench and he's going to hit Richard. Well, he didn't actually hit Richard. But, you know, I said cut. So I knew I was going to freeze frame. <laughs> The gentleman over there in the front. Uh, hi, you mentioned um, a script that you'd abandoned uh, recently. I just wondered, have you got lots of abandoned scripts, and or has that become rarer over your career? Um, not really. He asked about abandoned scripts. Because of this process I use, I try not to write until I know it's going to work. And I was writing a script about my late brother, very very personal script, and. I thought I had it, and I wrote it, and I knew I somehow, it wasn't, I missed it, I missed it. And because it was such a personal subject, you know, it was time to put it on the shelf and see if it comes back to life again. But I'm not going to go in the marketplace with something that personal that I don't believe in. There's a lady down here in the front row. Um, hi. Hello. Uh, so yes, first of all, thank you for being so entertaining as well as so helpful at the same time. Um, and my question is kind of a follow-up from that and also a response to what you were saying about what audiences are and aren't interested in. If the demand was there, the particular areas that you would like to go into that you're just kind of waiting for a sign for, like, what, like stories you want to tell or subjects that you want to broach that it's still burning a hole inside you? Um... Well, I mean, you know, yeah, I talked earlier about the problems, you know, one has along, along this journey. Well, obviously, the last problem you have is, you know, your own demise. And uh, I tried to do a film about that some years ago, and it, it was taken away from me, and uh, I disowned it. A film called Dying of the Light with Nick Cage. So it's still out there. I haven't yet solved that one. So I, maybe I should swing back around. One of the problems with doing a film about old age is that, you know, it's harder to sell tickets. Uh, because, you know, everyone wants to sell tickets to the younger audience. And uh, 
So you, you have to be very, very careful about that. I mean, I would love to do, you know, I would love to do a film about new intelligence. Uh, but again, you have that same problem. It's like somebody says, uh, I'm going to do a film about the Neanderthals and the Cro-Magnons. But, and it's about how, no, and the Homo sapiens, the Neanderthals and the Homo sapiens, and how the Homo sapiens advanced. But you can only sell tickets to the Neanderthals. <laughs> well, you know, that becomes a hard sell. <laughs> Uh, so it's, it's you know it's hard to make a movie in which the uh, the uh, the uh, the failed the failed species is the one that's watching it. <laughs> um, we only have time for one more question because we're going to show a clip from First Reformed at the very end. But there's a lady over there uh, on the right with the microphone. Thank you. Thank you, Paul. My quick question is, have you learned or have you experienced from um, writer's block, the experience of writer's block? Writer's block. Have you had it? Have you learned uh, it? Usually with this method, you don't have it because you don't start writing until you know everything. Uh, if you have, uh, so you never stop not knowing what's going to come next. You know, one of the secrets of writer's block is you ha always have to finish writing for the day before you've completely finished the scene. So you, you immediately jump right back in, you know where you are. Um, the, uh, the longest period of writer's block I had was, I used to be a, a night writer. Uh, and I would start about 11 and write till 5, 6 in the morning. And that was a, a kind of cascade of alcohol, nicotine, caffeine, and cocaine. And you can, you can get a lot of writing done. You know? <laughs> um, and, you know, there were certain spelling errors, but it was, <laughs> for the most part, it was quite good. And, uh, and those little people who live inside the typewriter, they need some inducement to come out. They just don't come out on their own. So you have to give them, say, come on out, come on out. And then they, then, they, then they come out and they climb out of the typewriter and start running all around the desk. Uh, then I had uh, a child. And the idea of going to bed at six was no longer a feasible one. Uh, and I also didn't want to be in that condition when you know, my child woke up. So I said that you know, it's time to become a day writer. And that took almost a year uh, to retrain myself. I got an office and I'd go there and I'd just sit. And, but I refused to write at night until finally it started to come and I could write during the day. And now I can't even write at night. Well, Paul, um, thank you very much.